Well, good morning. Yeah. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? This is Pentecost Sunday. And the reading of the story we heard today was both heartwarming and head-challenging. In that chapter, we had people gathered in a season of uncertainty. And they had come together with a singular purpose, to find out what to do next. Talk about a roller coaster ride. Those earliest Jesus followers had had their hopes seriously dashed uh, before when their leader Jesus had been arrested and executed. And then they'd witnessed a glorious resurrection, a profound reversal of fortunes when the crucified Jesus rose from the dead and lived for a season among them. But then, just as this new spiritual movement seemed to be getting some traction, Jesus disappeared into the clouds, leaving precious few instructions about what to do next. And what he said in chapter 1, verse 8 was, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were on the receiving end of that message, I wouldn't know what to make of it or what to do. Receive power? Become witnesses? What's that supposed to mean? What comes next? What are we supposed to do? No doubt, they were puzzled. What they did was to stick together. The inner circle of former disciples gathered with various other followers, including many women, and... In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says that all were of one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. Of one accord, devoted to prayer. Prayer is an authentic Christian response in any engagement or struggle. And since communication with God is a good thing to God-seekers... Preparing oneself by gathering with others of like mind and actually praying about the issue at hand is a pretty basic starting point. Pray, carry on, and maybe wait. In our story today, after a season of waiting, wonderful things did occur. The power arrived. It came as a glowing fire that seemed to alight on the heads of the worshipers and bringing with it a strange gift of a new tongue. And those empowered Jesus followers swirled out into the crowded Jerusalem streets with the story of what just happened spilling from their lips in languages that they never knew before. They suddenly became witnesses to a divine power that could unite all people everywhere, a message of love and salvation. 
Have you ever noticed how this story reverses the separating influences of language and ethnicity that the Tower of Babel birthed? In that early narrative in the book of Genesis, the people of the world were working together on a great building project that became so important in their own minds that they neglected God. It was a compelling purpose that directed their lives and displaced their creator. God was displeased and confounded their tongues so that they could no longer understand what one another was saying. It's hard enough to cooperate and collaborate with people when you understand their language, but when you cannot communicate, things fall apart. And it wasn't long before the people of the world were scattered into groups and ethnicities, tribalisms and nationalisms and all sorts of things that define us by our differences. Pentecost works the other way. It breaks down the barriers posed by language and diversity, making the good news of God's reconciliation available to all not just to a select few based on beliefs or origins or status. Pentecost power brings us together. It brings us together in prayer, and at some point, it sends us into service. And that's what happened to the gathering that became a movement that stirred the religious life of old Jerusalem, and things went swimmingly with, expand, with this expanding group for a while. For a few months, the glow lingered. The sense of solidarity was strong. But this did involve human beings, after all. And it wasn't long before these earliest Christians were experiencing their own struggles, some arising right within their movement and others from without. Within a year or two, the situation was quite different from those early, heady days of everybody getting along and looking after each other and sharing all that they had. I'm going to jump about 11 chapters down the road just now to when, uh, to Acts 12, when the believers are huddling under siege. A Pharisee named Saul has been working hard to banish this troublesome new sect. These troublemakers have not got on the good side of the king. He is not amused. And when Herod found that his popularity actually increased when he resorted to violence against the church, he leaned even more heavily on them. And so by the time we get to this episode, the church's most visible leader, Peter, has been imprisoned, and the church is running scared and meeting in secret. In Acts 12, the church that proclaims salvation through Jesus Christ had moved beyond its infant stage. It had done some good things. Its members actually already had been scattered and the gospel was spreading to new regions. The disciples had just been called Christians for the first time. 
And these Christians were doing some characteristically Christian things. A famine had been ravaging many countries, and the believers in Antioch organized a relief shipment to help those in Jerusalem. And now, at the beginning of chapter 12, we learn that really tough times are coming down on the Christians. And we will see that their response was predictable. Prayer. I'll say it again is an authentic Christian response in any engagement or struggle. Church life has ever had its ups and downs. It's always been that way. And when Jesus Christ died, his followers sorrowed. When he rose from the dead, they were elated. When he ascended to heaven, they felt abandoned. And when his spirit came upon him, on them, While they were spending time in prayer, they poured into the streets proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to complete strangers in languages other than their first tongue or anything they had ever studied. And that was a high. Peter preached. 3,000 people responded to the message, were baptized, welcomed into the community, a time of real euphoria. But life did become more difficult. And by the time we get to Acts 12, the tough times have really taken hold. Violence is being used against the believers, even against their leaders. King Herod has killed the apostle James, James the brother of John. And because this seemed to please the locals, Herod had Peter arrested, made plans to execute him as soon as the Passover holiday was over. Peter was kept in prison under the watch of an elite guard. He'd been given the death sentence. His demise was certain. Can you imagine how this must have affected those early believers? Their most prominent leader is about to die violently. And no doubt they're wondering who will be next. What will happen to the church The overwhelming power of Pentecost seems to have blown through and moved on. These were dangerous and discouraging times. What are we going to do? So how did they respond to this struggle? You guessed it. They prayed. In chapter 12, verse 5 describes their activity. It says, While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. It's not a very long verse, but it contains at least four principles that seem to have been part and parcel of the power that propelled the early church. First, we see again an emphasis on the church gathered. This is more than solitary prayer. The people of God had banded together to pray. They found strength in being together. They are the church, a fellowship of believers, a congregation. They believed in getting together to pursue their common purpose, and that's what they did. Their action and their purpose demonstrated their Christian unity. They came together to pray. 
The second thing we notice about the way these early Christians responded to this threat is that their prayer was earnest. The text says they prayed fervently. This was not an idle exercise they were engaged in. Rather, they involved themselves in intense, believing, passionate, ardent, fervent prayer. The third principle is something that can easily go unnoticed. Prayer is actually quite common. Lots of people reach out for a touch of the transcendent quite regularly. But who are we praying to? From whence cometh our help? Now, these early believers were clear about where their prayers were directed. Our text specifies that they prayed to God, and the context makes it clear that they were reaching out to the God known by the Jews as Yahweh, who, Christians claimed, had given the world a savior in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. They weren't just calling out to gods. This wasn't just some, oh my God, sort of moment. They were adamant that the one they worshipped was the one true God. And this was a startling claim, a novel idea to the Greeks and Romans whose cultures were dominant They had whole pantheons of gods. Fourth, the Christian believers knew what they were praying about. Verse 5 says the church got together to pray to God for Peter. There was a clear objective to their activity. There was a certain specificity that no doubt stretched their faith. Try to imagine yourself as one of these early Christians who's come together to pray for your leader who is about to be executed. Other leaders are already dead, and you know you could very well be next. You haven't committed any crime other than to believe and act as if Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. And so when you get together to pray for Peter, what exactly are you going to ask for? How specific are you going to get? Some of you, no doubt, will pray that Peter will be released. But could you pray for that earnestly and fervently? Could you believe it as you prayed for it? Or would you just be going through the motions? What if you had just... uh, short while earlier been praying for James to be released, and you already know what happened to him. Maybe some of you would simply pray for Peter to remain strong and faithful while he is imprisoned, that he would not renounce his Savior when the time comes for him to die. After all, you're the people who know Peter the best, and... uh, He might seem a strong leader now, but some of you will remember that he was not brave on the night that Jesus was betrayed when the questions of a little servant girl were enough to make him deny that he ever knew Jesus. You know Peter has weaknesses. Are you praying that he'll be strong? Meanwhile, on the night before Peter is to face the executioner, he is in a heavily guarded cell bound with two chains, sleeping between two soldiers, four more guards at the door, and several levels of locks separating them from freedom. 
maximum security. But in the wee hours of the night, something remarkable happened. In Acts 12, it tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone. The angel tapped Peter on the side to wake him up, telling him to get up and hurry out. Miraculously, the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Can you imagine the sound heavy iron chains would make on a stone prison floor? Not exactly the way to make a quiet getaway. Regardless, it didn't bring more guards running. The angel told Peter to get dressed and to follow. It's kind of funny, actually. Peter is going along with all this, but he doesn't really think it's happening. Verse 9, it says he thought he was seeing a vision. A pretty realistic vision, though. The angel led Peter past the first guard and past the second guard. And eventually they came to the great iron gate separating the prison population from the citizens of the city. And then this huge, heavy lock barrier swung silently open like the automatic doors welcoming you into your shopping center. Now, I imagine all of this happening in an eerie sort of silence. And then Peter and his angelic companion found themselves out in the streets of the city where, as suddenly as he arrived, the angel disappeared. And it's only then that Peter actually woke up. Verse 11 says that Peter came to himself. Standing outside the prison walls, he began to realize that the Lord had miraculously delivered him from death. But it must have been a somewhat disconcerting feeling there on the dark and empty streets of the city when it dawns on him that he can now add escaped prisoner and fugitive to his list of crimes. And can't you just picture him looking around and wondering who might be watching and wondering, what am I going to do next? But he didn't think about that for very long. Why? He knew that he needed to reconnect with his people, and he had a good idea where his partners in faith would be. He knew that they would be together, even though it was past the middle of the night. He also had a good idea of what they would be doing. They would be praying earnestly and fervently, and he knew they would be praying to the same God who had just delivered him from prison, praying for him. And so he set out to find them. I don't know if Peter sneaked his way through the streets like a common thief or if he walked boldly, but he headed to the safe house and knocked at the outer gate. A young woman named Rhoda came to answer the door, and she was so surprised when she recognized Peter's voice that instead of letting him in, she ran back to the prayer meeting to tell the people that Peter was standing at the gate. And then this group of fervently praying Christians couldn't believe that their prayers had actually been answered. You're out of your mind, they told her. 
But she insisted it was true. And so there they were doing what Christians too often do, having an argument about what might or might not be true without bothering to actually check the facts. Meanwhile, Peter's left standing in the cold outside, banging away at the door, hoping someone will let him in. And eventually, the people inside come to their senses and are totally amazed that Peter is truly back among them. He told them his story and then headed off into hiding. And I can't leave this story without mentioning something of its aftermath. In verse 18, it says, with marvelous understatement, that when the morning came, there was no small commotion among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. (laughs) No small commotion, indeed. Herod was so angry that he had all those guards put to death. Those were brutal times. I don't know if anyone ever lives in times devoid of some brutality. We are very fortunate uh, here in Canada to have such a wide range of freedom, so many opportunities, so much peace, so much good order, so much comfort. And yet everyone I meet, even here, has struggles of one sort or another, whether it is personal health or finances or jobs or relationships or conflicts or any of a thousand other issues common to humanity. Life is often demanding. It often throws curves that are hard to deal with. And especially in stressful times, we look for guidance. We look for hope. We look for resolution. We seek to overcome. And in the process, we often realize that we need help. We typically draw first from our own resources, then look to others for support and companionship. And when at some point we realize the solution is beyond our means, we call out, to the heavens, to the powers we believe made us. We seek help from above. Now, I'm pretty sure that prayer is more effective when it's used as a first resort rather than as a last resort. And that's because a way that prayer has a way of changing the prayer. But that's a different sermon. Prayer is whenever we bring ourselves to attention before God. Whenever we find ourselves looking for a touch of the transcendence to connect us, to in some way, whether tangibly or intangibly, to assist us on our way. Now, I'm not aware of anyone here who has experienced anything like the day when fire appeared in the prayer's heads and with new languages on their tongues and the believers spilling into the streets proclaiming the name of Jesus. I'm not aware of anyone here needing a jailbreak to avoid execution. But I'm also not aware of anyone here who would not benefit from a glimpse of God's glory and a hint of God's power. 
Our circumstances may not be extreme, but even here we struggle. Most of our life is lived in the ordinary, which comes right after Pentecost in the church calendar. Ordinary is the longest season. And while the exceptional moments of powerful prayer make for great stories and build faith, it is the routine trudge of the ordinary that tests us day to day. I don't know about you, but I know about me, and that is that this daily, regular attention to God thing often doesn't happen. I manage to neglect the habits that truly feed me and waffle along instead on my own power. I'm not proud of that. There are times when I really don't know what to do next. Not to mention all the times when I don't bother to do what I know to do. In a couple of weeks, I'll be back here asking, what would Jesus undo? And discussing the fact of spiritual indifference. Today, however, I am very grateful to be reminded that I have recourse to actions that have proven vital to countless Christians through the ages. And what I'm trying to say is something I said earlier. Prayer is an authentic Christian response in any engagement or struggle. Prayer is a Christian's best first response. Praying together is important. There is strength in unity. Praying fervently is important. We need to believe that God does indeed answer our prayers. We also need to direct our prayers to the God who loves us, who is willing and able to answer us, and we can be specific with our requests. Let's not be afraid to pray about the things that actually matter to us. Shall we pray? O Lord, our ways are not your ways, neither are your ways our ways. You choose sometimes to come in power. Thank you for those moments. More often, you show up in the ordinary, visible to those who have eyes to see. Attune us, O God, to your mind, that we may serve you well. Draw us together. Lead us in prayer. Encourage us on our journeys. And may we give you the praise. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.